Welcome in to another edition of New Track Record. Caleb Hatch with you. Justin Kinney will be joining us a bit later on tonight, but we are welcoming on a former IndyCar driver and hopefully the first in a series of where are they now during this offseason before the 2022 IndyCar season starts. And tonight we're welcoming on Robbie Groff. Robbie, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Robbie, we're going to kind of work our way backwards, but since your racing career kind of wrapped up uh, about 15 or so years ago, what have you been up to? What What is career and life like after racing? Well, uh, when I essentially retired from IndyCar racing in 1998, I figured it would be a good time to start looking at uh, my professional career and what am I, what I'm going to do afterwards, but it was pretty simple because I had an opportunity to work in the family business, which I knew was always there and kind of tended to it a lot over the years along the way up until that point. And I've been working there full time and, uh, I'm an owner and we have a, a construction company excavation and utilities third generation owner and I've been doing that. And then I've been married for 17 years with a 16 year old and 14 year old daughters. Now backtracking a lot further back now, how did you kind of get into racing? What was your introduction? My dad was though not a race car driver, he was quite interested in things that were motorized and cars and speed. He had the fastest 57 Chevy in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburban Los Angeles, <laughs> that, or, or legend has it. And so he was always interested in that. And he had someone who was working for him, and the, and this person had two daughters, and they both were racing in quarter midgets. And they got to talking, and he was he basically sold the idea on my dad, like, this is a good thing to do with your family. It's like Little League. Boy, was he right. <laughs> it was like we got into it, and I was seven years old, and it was like Little League times ten. It was just a great experience and a great time in my life. And you mentioned you were seven. You're racing in, in quarter midgets back in 73 uh, through 81. You won two national championships. Was this something that you kind of took to immediately, or did it take a bit of time before you realized that you were pretty good at this whole racing thing? <laughs> uh, it. I think I was, I think it probably took about, probably about a year and a half, probably two years, you know, till I kind of like matured enough to get what was going on and really uh, go after the objective. Um, there was, you know, what I remember well, there was one point along the way where I was getting a little frustrated that I wasn't winning. I think I was still about seven years old and I like sucker punched the winner uh, of the race in the gut. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, I've, I've, I've put that behind me and, you know, we're all better now, but yeah. Do you remember about how old you were when that happened? Was it just kind of youthful frustration? Yeah. Seven years old. Oh yeah. 
And then you progressed your career. You did some go-karts for a couple of years. Formula Ford, you won three races. Then you moved up to Super V's. And this is where it obviously starts to get a little bit more serious. At, at what point was this when your racing career, you realized this is a real thing and I can go somewhere with this? I would say that was probably sooner that, uh, as far as like a commitment to like, this is what I want to do. Um, that would have probably have been a few years earlier, uh, when I was right, right when I was doing go-karts. Um, but when, when I, when, you know, when I was winning races in formula Fords and was on the pace right away in super V's. Yeah. I, 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 I would say that I, yeah, I, I had, I had what it took. Um, I had chances to win races, um, which I eventually did. And, you know, there was no reason to back off. And as long as the support was there to keep going, I was going to keep going. And then eventually you worked your way up to Graf Motorsports, the American Racing Series and, and Indy Lights. Was that your, your dad who put together that team? Yes. He had the, the will and the interest and the resources and he hired mechanics and provided the, you know, the, the, the infrastructure of the team. And it was a successful team. I'm, I'm sure there, there, there could have been others that if they ever drove for us, you know, would, would have done, done pretty well too, but we definitely put out a good team. Now in your time racing in lights and, and the junior series, Obviously, I'm sure you competed against some, some many other name race car drivers. Who were some of the competition for you growing up? I would say, you know, starting with my, you know, the professional career. Um, let's see. Uh, Scott Atchison was, was big in my, uh, my earlier years of Super V. Uh, and then Paul Tracy. And... Um, the Robbie Buell, and I mean, there's just so many uh, for sure. To you know, uh, just trying to narrow down the list, but definitely got to race against uh, a lot of people that you can look back at now and say, "Wow, you know, those were those were good drivers." Who was the driver that no one's ever heard of that was kind of the, the best driver you competed against growing up as a kid? That no one ever heard of. Well. I would say there's a few, um, you know, my good friend, Scott Harrington, um, that from Indianapolis these days, uh, originally from Louisville. Um, but the one that sticks out in my mind who I raced against, not a lot. He was kind of before me, um, would have been, would be Tommy Byrne. Probably that's kind of his title. The most, I think he's like the most talented driver you've never heard of in your life. Um, was like quicker than Nicky Lauda. The first time he ever got into a McLaren formula one car, back in 1982, um, but just, you know, just never, never even did an IndyCar race, but he did a few, um, he did a few Formula, Formula One races, yeah. And then when you advanced to IndyCar, uh, you started with Bittenhausen Motorsports, there's the Engine War of 94, did you know of Penske's development of the Beast engine for the Indy 500 at that time, or was that completely off the radar? You know, um, it was known uh, at the time because uh, there was a lot of decisions to be made 
Um, for me, that winter of uh, 93, 94, um, you know, one, one, one decision that, that I regret is that I didn't do uh, with, go with another team to do more races, but I wanted to go with Bettenhausen because they had a great engine and uh, car package from the year before the Penske, I think PC23, with the, C, with the Chevy C engine. Well, we knew about the Mercedes coming, and, and I guess it was the B engine, or actually it was the A engine. But now I know, like in hindsight, I know why Bettenhausen didn't get the new, you know, the latest Penske that year and the latest Penske engine that year because it was like, as you remember, like in a different class. And then there's a gap in 95 and then you move over to the IRL for the uh, inaugural season and your first race, the Indy 500, uh, you had... Quite the result. You finish ninth. You're one of 54 drivers in Indy 500 history with one start and a top 10 finish. How did your Indy 500 and, and IRL deal come together for that season? So I'd been trying to get into IRL since it started. And so, you know, so I was pretty active in, in that world for the, uh, my goodness, let me see, what, uh, 95, 96, you know, so probably like a year I'd been around trying to put something together with somebody. My brother was racing at the time, uh, in IRL. So, uh, I had some advantages, but I could never put anything together, uh, for a very, for, um, a myriad of reasons. But then at the, um, Right, I would say probably right after the Phoenix race in 97, so we're talking March 1997, um, maybe a little bit after that, I was able to get with, I've, heard, I've probably heard about Dennis McCormick, uh, had an availability, I think his driver left after Phoenix, so I, I just, it was one of those things, I picked up the phone, I think we talked, um, I was able to bring enough uh, to make it happen, and he was able to bring enough too, and and then we struck a deal. I you know probably signed it probably the you know probably the first week of May the contract, and next week we were out on the track, and it was a great month with him and the team and the rest of the year, and it was it was sad to have to say goodbye at the end of '97. Yeah, you, you mentioned Blueprint, the team you shifted to for 98. It seemed like there were so many teams in that early IRL era. What what precipitated that? So I was, uh, Raul, uh, Raul Boisel replaced me, I think it was probably maybe December of 97. So I was uh, jobless and I would continue to remain jobless until probably about four or five days before the Walt Disney World 200 in January of 98, I got a a call from the uh, top brass at IRL, and the call was, we we have a seat that we want to to fill, and because they were kind of doing that at that time, just to keep it going. And, you know, Tony George says he wants this to happen, so can you do it? And I just said, of course, hopped on a plane, you know, uh, red eyed to, to Orlando. And I did like a few laps in practice and then it rained. And then 
I get on the gas pedal for the start and it swapped ends and I just couldn't believe it because I thought I got everything up to, up to temperature uh, that I needed to, you know, I was familiar with the, with the, with the, with the protocol, uh, especially even on a, a colder day. And uh, fortunately I didn't hit anybody, but that was, that was essentially my, um, that was my retirement right there in, in one scene. And, and Walt Disney World, um, to put it nicely, was a unique track. As a driver, you know what what was your kind of what were your thoughts at the time in real time on racing on that track? Not much of an opinion. Like I said, it was really brief, and it didn't. I can just say that it was. It didn't seem to be any. Um, uh, it didn't seem to be weird or difficult or. And like unreasonably challenging. It seemed like actually a pretty reasonable, straightforward course uh, in my maybe 10 laps. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Groff joins us here on New Track Record. So after your IndyCar career wrapped up, you did a little bit in IMSA, the 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring. But I think the, the part that is really fascinating to me, uh, you took part in Baja 1000s, a couple of those. From 2002 to 2004, finished uh, the top 10. We've seen some IndyCar legendary names like Parnelli Jones uh, compete and win at Baja, and Alex Rossi actually just won at Baja the other week. It is wow. so different, you know, from being in a, a Formula type car and then driving off road. What is that like? I mean, you're you're driving through the night. There's not really a course, right? I mean, it, it is totally different from a closed circuit course. Yeah, uh, there's a lot. To, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, it you know you're on a you're on a course that's marked by the um, the officiating body, which is score in this in this case. And you know most of it's off road, but I got to tell you, you're in Mexico, so there's not many rules. Part of the race is on the public highway, which is just one of the most I just thought was was one of the most amazing things ever. And, you know, because you're doing a buck 25 in the desert on this highway and you're passing a family in their car doing 50 miles an hour. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. We, we had we'd have to carry our driver's license and a, hun- and a few hundred dollar bills in case we got pulled over in the race. And it definitely had happened. But. As far as uh, driving off-road, uh, there were similarities uh, for sure. Um, definitely the road course aspect of it was similar, but I have to tell you it was the ultimate road course because you're on every different type of surface uh, and everything in between, fast corners, slow corners, like the whole universe gets thrown at you. We're here in Baja, Mexico, and it's just the it's just the greatest and craziest thing all at the same time. Did you have any close calls either with uh, just passenger cars on the course, or you know, even losing losing a truck? Um, we were pretty lucky, I have to tell you. Um, definitely, you know, probably made a pass uh, on the other side of the highway probably when I shouldn't have, but I got away with it, those sort of things. We weren't around too long, but you can, that happens to a lot of mishap, you know, having 
having um, chase trucks being crashed, you know, yourself being crashed. Um, you know, I remember when in the like when the Nevada races that I did, I I remember being up on like God only knows 500 feet uh, up on the side of this road up uh, above a ravine, and all that's separating you from the ravine is this you know, the windrow that the, that the motor grader just cut. And it's, you know, it's about a half foot high. I remember bumping a wheel off that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience though. It was like arguably the most fun I ever had in a race car. And then in, you uh, sent some, some, some solid info to us beforehand, but tell us more about this dust to glory documentary film that came out in 2005. So, the, um, there was a, a gentleman named Marty Fioka who was uh, involved in our team, got us into, uh, he was actually in IndyCars. He was one of the, and you would appreciate this, uh, the first PR guy that worked for um, the, the Infinity Engine Program in IRL. Um, that's how we got to know him. But he was a big off-roader, and he got us into off-road racing. And But he was very, like, he had the attention of the media. He was like, the guy that everyone came to for stories and for anything happening in off-road. So he ended up being on the front lines of uh, a movie idea, a documentary uh, feature link uh, film about the Baja 1000. And um, I don't remember the genesis of it, but it, the person he got together person he got together with to do this was um, Bruce Brown's son, Dana Brown. Bruce Brown of uh, On Any Sunday and Endless Summer fame. Uh, his son was doing some great films at the time, sure still is. And um, Dana was the director of our, our film, and it seems to have captured a wide variety of people with different interests because it's, it's just kind of a it's, – it's a really – a it's a, it's a, it's a human story, um, of, of challenges and survival and, 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 uh, being victorious. Really, really unique event that, I mean, even myself not being from the West coast, I feel like it's, it's an event that's very popular to those in California, but the Midwest maybe doesn't get the traction it deserves, but I feel like in recent years that's changed quite a bit. Good, good. I mean, and I hope, uh, Alex Rossi, you know, um, and people like him uh, helped that. And I didn't know he won. That thing gets, I think that's fantastic. I'm going to have to do a little more research on that. Um, even more respect for Alex. He's, he's one of my um, favorite IndyCar drivers, for sure. So what, you know, going back to IndyCar, are, are you kind of just a fan? What, what is your involvement in the sport today? I I watch. Uh, I don't watch a lot of races. I definitely watch the 500, and I'll probably catch another race or two. I seem to be going to Long Beach Grand Prix, which is a local race for me, um, more regularly since my girls uh, got old enough and kind of discovered it was kind of a cool thing to go see. So, um, so I you know I do that. I am still uh, I am still in communication with with a few people that are quite involved, uh, like my, uh, my dear friend, Jimmy Vassar. And, and now my friend, Zach Brown, who, uh, is now in IndyCar as well as, uh, McLaren Formula One. Yeah. You, you have quite the connections there in the friend department for IndyCar. You have a couple of team owners. How did you uh, get to know them just growing up in California? 
Yes. So Jimmy met him racing quarter midgets, eight years old, just seemed rebellious and a little wild. And I just seemed to gravitate towards him and, you know, became friends for life from that point on. And just, you know, uh, we're very good friends, hung out a lot, raced a lot together. We raced Formula Fords together, uh, a little bit of Indy cars. And then Zach was just kind of a cold call sort of, he was just, you know, he was a young guy. He was like eight, he was like 18, 19 years old. He had a passion for motorsports. He knew that a fellow San Fernando Valley resident of his was uh, an Indy car driver and an Indy lights driver. So he reached out to a brother and I, and him and I just hit it off right from the start. And we just became great friends and, had a ton of laughs and a ton of fun over the years. And we've just, you know, though we've gone our separate ways, we come together every once in a while, like, like no time has passed. That's, that's really cool. I mean, have you been surprised at what Zach has been able to do in motorsports over the years? Yes. And no. And I say yes, just because, you know, my buddy is just like, he went ahead and did it, but what one of the things that appealed to me from the beginning is I knew what he knew and I knew what he was special and I knew he had a lot of, a lot of gifts and I knew he was going to do some good things with them. Not quite. And I think the yes is not quite as much as, as he's done. Um, but he, there was a lot of doubters. There was a lot of people who did not believe in him and thought he was, was, you know, not the real deal. And I, stu- you know, I stuck with him the whole time. I'm like, absolutely. This guy's going to do it. So yeah, sure enough. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for taking some time to, to join us this week. It's, it's always kind of a unique thing to catch up with drivers from the past and see what they're doing now and kind of reminisce on their careers. And we appreciate you taking the time to do so. I appreciate it very much. And, uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Robbie Groff for joining us. First of hopefully many in our Where Are They Now series, kind of talking to drivers from past and present. And joining us now, it is Justin Kenny from a remote location. Hello, Justin. Hello, Caleb. Yeah, you know, it's uh, Robbie Groff was great to have on, and he was very receptive when we reached out to him. And that's part of the beauty of the random split arrow driver of the week is if you can track down some of these guys, uh, they have a lot of really good stories for sure. So uh, it was great to have Robbie on and hopefully, uh, like you said, first of, of several we can have on at least uh, here in the off season. All right. Switching to what's happening in IndyCar. Now we've had some announcements. We had the Detroit announcement, Dalton Kellett, and also uh, another name to throw into the hat for the Ed Carpenter racing seat. Let's start with that because I think that's kind of the big surprise Jack Aitken, who competed in an F1 race last season with Williams when uh, George Russell was filling in for Lewis Hamilton when he had COVID-19, he is now set to test with Ed Carpenter Racing. This will come at Sebring on Monday. He'll join uh, several other drivers in that test. Nick DeVries will drive for Meyer Shank Racing. Also, Stoffel Van Dorn for Aero McLaren SP. And then Hunkos Hollinger Racing We'll have Callum Eilat as well, all at the test. Another name, we know Connor Daly, we know Ryan hunter Ray, but Jack Aitken, another name to throw into the hat here, and I think this one a little bit more unexpected. Yeah, and uh, Eagle Eye Caleb, 
being able to see that tweet before it was deleted by Jack Aitken, and, and, and you said it was his name on an ECR tub. And uh, once he put that out, he was probably told, hey, we're not ready to release that information, <laughs> but uh, kudos to you for seeing it and, and tweeting it out. But, um, yeah, I think Jack Aitken even coming off a, an injury in a GT race earlier this year. So um, I think he's a guy that, you know, when we talk about the – um, influx of talent from Formula One. Maybe we're, you know, he's not on the tip of, the, of everybody's tongue, but he'll be another guy that has appeared in, in an F1 race recently uh, that maybe has a future in IndyCar. And if he brings some funding, which after the loss of, of the Air Force is kind of top priority for ECR, all the better. Well, and the other thing I noticed. Uh, this coming from David Mulsher Lopez of motorsport.com. As always, throwaway line at the end of the story that I found fascinating. <laughs> um, Carlin Stephanie Tyndall has told motorsport.com that no announcement should be expected before Christmas. And the context for that is in regards to how a merger could work between Hunkos Hollinger and Carlin Racing. So don't expect anything soon before Christmas on any details on that proposed merger. I feel like the longer we go without driver announcements by Carlin, the more likely it is for some sort of merger or sale to Hunko's Hollinger Racing. It, I don't know. To me, Aitken was a guy that I thought, you know, for Carlin, uh, there were rumors that they were looking at uh, Dan Tictum, and then he got a Formula E ride. It just seems like an F2 level guy who feels like they've kind of done all they can or or may not have a seat in F2 or want to get to F1 and they don't have the opportunity to do so. seems like that's the perfect fit for what Carlin needs uh, for IndyCar in 2022. I would agree. And, you know, we thought maybe that would be Logan Sargent, but he's gotten an opportunity uh, now as as the reserve driver with Williams. Is that what his new gig is? I think so. Yeah. So uh, it worked out for Logan Sargent, but hasn't worked out the same for for Jack Aitken. But, uh, you know, you look at it, and, you know, he's a guy that was, you know, really good in the European formulas in the uh, mid-2010s. Um, but, you know, I think his EP3 finished second. But since then, you know, not very competitive in Formula 2. Um, and even in, the, in GT, he struggled. Now, is he with crappy teams? I'm not sure, but, um, you know, didn't embarrass himself in, in F1 in his sole race, you know, and, and, you know, with Williams, it can be tough not to do that. But um, I think this is a kid that maybe has some potential, maybe with not the, the, without the star power of, say, a Logan Sargent and some other guys that have come over. Um, but at 26 years old, maybe he can get some new life here in the States um, in IndyCar. And Ed Carpenter telling Racer.com an article last week uh, that they hope to have this ride button up before the calendar flips over. Carpenter saying he thinks that's realistic. And then also Connor Daly believes that he can raise the same amount of funding to match or slightly exceed what the Air Force contributed. Obviously, Ed's going to kind of shop around and see, you know, highest bidder. I think that's what's happening here. And to be fair... It makes sense, but Connor sounds confident. Obviously, Jack Aitken, I'm sure, brings a significant amount of funding. And it just comes down to 
the highest bidder and who can reach a deal. And I, you know, the one positive, I guess, is, you know, IndyCar and the teams in general are in better positions than, say, five years ago to replace the loss of a primary sponsor. It's still not easy by any means, but you have to feel economically there may be a little bit, um, uh, you know, some more sponsors out there that fit the bill as opposed to five or six years ago. Now, whether that's uh, ECR is able to replace the Air Force with one singular sponsor or it's a series of sponsorships similar to what we've seen with Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan over the last several years, I'm not sure. But I feel like at least with the positive directions, the positive steps that the series has taken, there has to be a little bit more influx of, uh, of interested parties, so to speak. And then shifting to other driver, you know, news and announcements. We didn't get really any kind of official confirmation, but Pareto Autosport, we were wondering what was happening with their 2022 Indy 500 plans. Well, Beth Pareto telling Marshall Prude of Racer.com, they are planning to be in the Indy 500 for 2022. They don't have a partner team yet. Obviously, Penske off the table. Um, Pareto says, I have options, and we're going through the options now. They originally planned to continue with Penske. That fell off. So the goal is Indianapolis. They want to be full-time. Uh, you know, they were trying to do that last year as far as adding races, and then Hunkos decided to uh, get prepared to run full-time this year, so that was off the table. What we do know from this article, Simona Di Silvestro is expected to be back um, because, well, it's pretty simple. Beth Beretta has the option there. She's under contract, so she's back with them for 2022. I think that's good. She's a fan favorite. I think uh, a lot of people were happy she was able to put the car into the field last year, or yeah, this year, and hopefully next year can yield better results. Yeah, lots of like in that uh, article at racer.com on Marshall Pruitt um, with Beth Peretta. And, um, you know, it talks about, you know, the loaning of the car, the chassis at least. Now, do they now have a chassis all to their own? Did the article say anything about that? I'm, I'm not sure. Not sure um, on that either, but it made it sound like they will be there. They will have Simona. They just need to find a partner team. Yeah, I don't know if it's they need to find a partner team with a chassis or there's uh, expectations to buy a chassis. Uh, I'm not really sure, but at least a lot of positive things to like in that story in terms of at least seeing Fred Autosport back at the Indianapolis 500, and I'd love to see him at a couple more races in 2022. And, you know, Take the Michael Shank approach, you know, do three races and you do six races. Then, you know, you build up into a full season. I think that'd be a great approach for Beth Peretta and her team. And looking forward to seeing that crew back in May at Indy. Yeah. Peretta saying that Pinsky will provide assistance. Keen to help is kind of the phrasing used in the article. And also they have the sponsorship. So, I mean, yes, you need the car, but when you have, the driver and you have the sponsorship that's a huge piece of the puzzle so sounds positive here like you said though doesn't really say anything about a car they're probably gonna have to partner with a team or form an alliance kind of like what they did last year but they will be back and and that's good news 
Elsewhere on the driver front, Dalton Kellett officially confirmed for 2022 with AJ Foyt Racing in the four-car full-time K-Line Insulators. No surprises here, but we finally got confirmation. I guess with Foyt, you, you start to wonder now, okay, you have two full-time cars with Kellett and Kirkwood. Will they have that third car? We know Rocket was kind of keen on a, on a third car. Marshall even mentioned that in one of the recent racer mailbags. Will they have that third car? That's that's the only question left for them in 2022. Yeah, a lot of, of things have settled, but that kind of is, is the one we're, we're looking at and kind of one of the few that still remain, right? And so um, I don't know if anything gets announced or solved between now and the new year. You know, I imagine we only have maybe a, a couple weeks until shops, you know, shut down for the holidays, so... I, I bet if we don't hear anything in the next week or two, it probably won't be until January. Yeah, and Dale Coyne Racing tweeted out something around Thanksgiving, obviously wishing everyone in America a happy Thanksgiving, and also, um, you know, we we should have some announcements soon. So to me, I take that before the end of the year would be kind of the word there. And again, Takuma Sato and David Malukas expected to be there. We've not heard anything otherwise. We wait, we wait and see. But for now, it's TBA on both, which is very fun for the the uh, Dale Coin <laughs> Racing entries. Absolutely, a throwback no to a, a bygone it feels era, right? right? Y- yes. Oh, absolutely, feels right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of the update on the driver front. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, Indy Five Hundred. We kind of know this is happening. It's not like officially confirmed, but Nathan Brown uh, finding a, a good nugget on Sirius XM about the Five Hundred. Jimmy said. We hope to have things set sooner than later. It's getting a little deeper in the year than we wanted. There's a lot of moving pieces to sort out. I hope to expand my schedule next year, but I just don't have anything to announce. And that is the update on Jimmy and the Indy 500. I feel like it's an inevitability. Almost to me, it's like a non-story because we know what the end game is. He's going to run the Indianapolis 500. So uh, maybe the most interesting thing Jimmy Johnson related out of the last couple weeks that I saw was Carvana. You see the story, Caleb, about Carvana and, you know, obviously his primary sponsor in IndyCar. Uh, with people, a lot of people complaining that they haven't gotten their temporary plates or anything from Carvana when they buy a car. I have and, not heard about this. That is not good. It could take months for some people, apparently, to receive uh, plates from Carvana. And uh, I guess this is a big deal, apparently, for, for a lot of people that have bought their cars from Carvana, which to me never really makes sense anyway, buying from Carvana. But um, apparently there's, you know, and Carvana's saying, you know, well, the influx of, of business with people not being able to go out over the last year and a half plus, uh, you know, supply issues and, you know, the usual uh, pandemic reasons why. But um, yeah, I found that pretty interesting. And, uh, and, and, and furthermore, I was down in Indianapolis last weekend, Caleb, and the Carvana right off I-69 there is empty. I don't know if it's closed oh, or not. I didn't know that. So I did notice they were tearing down a building kind of like right near there. Uh, okay. Like a few months ago. Uh, but I didn't I didn't notice the Carvana was empty. So that is a fascinating development. <laughs> I don't know if it was still Carvana. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't imagine they sold all their cars or whatever in there. But it was definitely empty. I, I didn't. See enough going 70 down I-69, whether uh, signage and everything was down. But, um, yeah, I always kind of like 
enjoy looking into the Carvana and seeing who the heck is actually buying a car out of that thing. I'm going to blame time down there last weekend. There were no cars in there. I'm going to blame the uh, chip shortage and the supply chain because that's <laughs> just what everyone does. Absolutely. <laughs> Some that's other kind of you can find you know GM trucks parked all over Fort Wayne because of the oh, yeah. chip shortage. It's not as bad as it was, but yeah, you go through a past a random parking lot and there's hundreds of trucks in there but from the uh, truck plant we have here in Allen County due to that chip shortage. Yeah, they are they are everywhere and it I mean I I understand it's gotten better like you said, but it's it's crazy how backed up they are on you know finishing production just because of needing those semiconductor chips. Other fringe driver stuff, this is not a surprise, but racer.com reporting Rossi not ready to commit to deal beyond 2022 yet. That a quote from Michael Andretti. I think we all kind of expected that. Also, did all- you even read that story? Because I saw the headline. I skimmed it. Laughed to myself and said, "No crap," and moved on. <laughs> yeah, I, I skimmed it. <laughs> Elsewhere yeah. with Andretti, they announced Oliver Askew as a, one of the drivers for their Avalanche Andretti Formula E team for season eight of Formula E. So, congrats to Oliver back with Andretti. Got a full time ride. Continuing on, Aaron McLaren SP, which uh, McLaren now has the majority stake. That has been finalized. Uh, but Pato Award and Felix Rosenquist will contest the Golf 12 Hours with United Autosport alongside their uh, team bosses. That includes Zach Brown. So that's a cool deal for them there. Pato got to test some McLaren F1 cars at Laguna Seca a couple weeks ago. A lot of cool videos out on that. And we get to, I think, kind of the other... Big news during our break, and that was the announcement of Detroit moving downtown. We knew this was coming. It'll be June 2nd through 4th, IndyCar and IMSA for the Detroit GP in 2023. A couple of notes from Nathan Brown on the press conference. Bud Dinker, who is the president uh, of this event, it was purposeful for us to go to Belle Isle, but Belle Isle has limitations. We probably reached our height in terms of the number of people to attend the races. Adds half the track will be open to the public for free. Something he said is unprecedented. And how did this happen? Well, Dinker says the idea came after the Music City GP in August. He brought the idea to to Roger, who said, if you think it's the right idea, then make it happen. And uh, they estimate a $77 million economic impact to the city, 20% increase from when the race has been run on Belle Isle. And Joseph Newgarden had rave reviews in, in the articles I've seen out there. The straight on Jefferson is seven-tenths of a mile, and it'll have the first-ever dual pit lane where cars will turn off the left to the left and right and then merge back together at the end. That will be... I don't know how that's going to work, but if they figure it out in Nashville, they can figure this out. It's a short circuit, too. 1.7 miles. It'll be the shortest IndyCar road street track that's currently on the schedule. A lot to like, I feel. And I, you know, I, I'm sure I've said this before, but some people, you know... They they like Belle Isle, and I surely like Belle Isle. I think it's a great course and great sight lines and, and just really cool setting. Uh, this is going to be different, but I'm not going to say worse. And if it helps the overall economic and, uh, you know, stability of the event itself and potentially, uh, and not saying that, you know, Chevy would, is leaving or anything, but, you know, going around the HQ of GM and, you know, really being a huge event for GM literally around their primary HQ, 
then I think it's good for IndyCar and good for the event. So if we have to sacrifice some action, and if it's not you know as, as quote-unquote racy as Belle Isle is, if it helps in other areas economically with the event and the sport itself, I think it's, it's a win-win. I just think having better access for fans, and I've been told mixed things about access for the track. I just think, though, having it downtown will attract a lot more people and it won't be such an isolated event where you'll know it's happening because there will be street closures, but also having free access for a lot of fans, that is unique. Uh, to me, I don't know why you would do that if you're the promoter of the event, but hey, whatever works, and to get more people with eyes on IndyCar, that's a good thing. Anybody that's going to Belle Isle is going to watch an IndyCar race or, you know, what, or racing in general, right? But some people that go to the Detroit Grand Prix may not be race fans. They're going for other events around the, the racing, you know what I mean? And just so happen to, oh, you know, racing kind of cool. You maybe gain some, some fans that way. So I think it's most definitely an advantage uh, for sure to move this thing and, and really, you know, maybe – uh, bring in some some fans and some viewers that otherwise couldn't care less about IndyCar. Some other notes to get to before we get to the mailbag. A lot of uh, tracks announcing tickets on sale. In fact, in just the last few days, the 2022 Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach, their tickets are on sale. GPLB.com is the website there. Also, the Honda Indy Grand Prix of Alabama tickets on sale. They'll have free parking while supplies last too, so you can check out their website for Barber. And the Portland uh, Grand Prix of Portland for next year. Tickets also on sale. PortlandGP.com slash tickets. And finally, the Bomberito Automotive Group 500. Weekend tickets now on sale to the general public. Uh, they have the link for tickets for that event. MetroTix.com is the link, and then uh, you want to go to Worldwide Technology Raceway, a.k.a. Gateway, and then they have their NASCAR tickets, IndyCar Weekend, and NHRA Weekend tickets all on sale as well. How about that? And it's it's really bizarre that here we are talking about the start of uh, IndyCar season in just a couple months now, you know, two months away, and, you know, Cup's done, NASCAR's done, and yeah, so here we are. In the, in the thick of, of a title race in Formula One with two races to go, and it just feels like the offseason with everything else, and, you know, we're not even done with the Formula One season yet. Yeah, at least there's some intrigue there, unlike in years past. <laughs> yeah, first time since I ever started caring in Formula One, which isn't very long, but, yeah, it's just been, you know, the championship race has been non-existent. Now we actually have a storyline here. First time since 2016 when uh, Rosberg beat Hamilton when they were teammates. All right. If you enjoy what you have heard, we'd love for you to interact with us. You can find us at NewTrackRecordPodcast.com. While you are there, sign up for our weekly email list to never miss an episode. You can interact with us on social media. Um, our Twitter handle is IndyCar Podcast. Facebook, search for us and like us, New Track Record. And then also you can send us an email as well. That email address is newtrackrecordpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, you can follow us for free on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple Podcasts. If you uh, follow us on there, do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating if you're nice. If you're really nice, 
write a review. You can also follow us for free on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, Justin, quickly, we'll go through the mailbag because, well, there's not a whole lot to get to. But while we are <laughs> at it, uh, N.K. Harden sent a poll. This is a couple weeks ago. What happens first? Third OEM international races or I get over my cold. 47% that I, I would get over my cold. And I have, thankfully, finally. Our hey, hey. uh, said all tough choices. Is it May yet <laughs> on uh, <laughs> the poll? So that's good stuff there. Our Cole on Detroit. Finally, some good sporting news coming from Detroit. Uh, God knows the Lions don't provide any. <laughs> Not at uh, all. Duguera on Twitter said, I guess a race in Mexico will happen already in 2023. The other things seem less likely. The winky face. Uh, Arkel <laughs> saying, do the right thing, Trevor Carlin. Everyone knows that new track record and Carlin are made for each other with their stickers kind of back to back on his fridge. That's funny. Uh, That's Racer awesome. Mac RTP one said, what, what you do to piss Carlin off? You know, we honestly don't know. You were just kind of jokingly calling them out in tweets. You know, when are you going to announce the lineup? And that was before what? 2020. And, yeah, and then we got blocked a week and a half before the event, I think, and we were just doing a countdown. You know, nine days left, eight days left, and the next thing we knew, we were blocked. So we were just having fun. You know, it's 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 normal for Dale Coyne. You know, he embraces it. But uh, at least the social media media manager of Carlin didn't see the humor in it. I guess no, apparently not. All right, and we got an email this week, and this is from Hostway. Uh, it's a blow for Ed Carpenter Racing to lose Air Force sponsorship. It's a tough situation for Connor Daly to be in as well. Can't help but feel that Ed Carpenter should seriously stop driving and focus 100%. I'm becoming a great owner so that his team will always have sponsorship and fight for wins. That is not challenging for wins or polls. He should put priority in running his team instead of fueling his useless ambition of racing. I'm sure eventually <laughs> he'll find sponsorship, but how soon? Uh, and then IndyCar needs a third OEM. However, I like the dual battle between Chevy and Honda duking out race after race. With that said, when the third OEM arrives, we a much needed welcome. IndyCar really needs to do something to make it attractive to get another third OEM to relieve the workload off Honda and Chevy. For the meantime, I really don't want to hear Jay Fry parrot the same nonsense he's been saying for the past decade. We're talking, we're having daily conversations, blah, blah, blah. Uh, thanks for your awesome podcast. <laughs> I think Jay Fry is sick of saying the same old thing. Yeah. You know, as, as people keep asking him, he's got to answer them. And unfortunately, you know, he's, he's went through the gamut of uh, generic answers. And now it's just, you know, it's being drowned out. It's kind of like the, uh, the adults in peanuts, you know, and you just hear wah, 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 wah. And I'm sure he's frustrated too, having to say it all the time. But uh, I think we'll get there uh, at some point, maybe before either one of us die, maybe. I hope so. I mean, it, it's been a long time that we've been waiting. I mean, it's we're almost at a decade. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing is, and you know, I caught this in, in the Racer Mailbag this week, is, is talking about a third OEM and coming in and who their quote-unquote factory team would be because that would be the big thing because, you know, as Marshall Pruitt mentioned, you know, you know Chevy and Honda carry – all of the, the teams and probably some teams that they otherwise wouldn't want. And a third OEM is going to come in and not just want to take the scraps of whatever's left that G that uh, Chevy and Honda don't want. So who would make the flip over to be that factory team, that primary team, or could it be a new team? Who knows? But uh, that would be a question, you know, that w we would gladly debate because that would mean that there was a third OEM in the mix. All things that uh, we hope will finally get answered here 
in the next, well, what, few months, you know, by the Indy 500, that would be great. Yeah, let's get, let's, maybe we can, uh, we can talk about some new things on the OEM front in terms of 2022, in terms of maybe actually having one confirmed. I mentioned it in the interview with Robbie Gropp, but uh, congrats to Alexander Rossi for a class win in the Baja 1000. And pretty special, he's now on the Indy 500, the 24 Hours of Daytona, and the Baja 1000. And as Eliza Markle pointed out, kind of his, I don't even know her official title for Rossi. She's kind of like the do-everything you know, at the track, but all yeah, in a Honda. Like publicist is fair, but... That's not the right, it's it's so much more than that. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, executive assistant? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, kind of, kind of like the czar. <laughs> If yeah. you will. Um, but, and then Calhoun 98, Russ Thompson pointing out on Twitter. So Rossi's done something that, you know, really no one else has done in Indy. Now, Parnelli won Baja 1000 overall in Indy, but never competed in the Rolex 24. So it's a unique thing that he's done with that. So that's, that's pretty cool indeed. All right. IndyCar nearing changes to qualifying format that on racer.com could be like a nine, nine, nine and a fast nine. I don't know. They're going to have to do something just because it's getting too clogged up. It is, but you know, you also, they have to think of length and, you know, I know not often the, the, uh, the qualifying was live on NBCSN, but you know, if it is going to be broadcast anywhere, uh, well, how do you fit it into a window? I can't imagine that 999 would go any faster. It's got to be slower in terms of time. So do you shorten the time, you know, in the minutes that you're out there? I'm not sure. It's a good problem to have, though, most definitely. Gabby Chavez will join Andretti for the uh, Daytona Rolex 24 hours. So congrats to him on the ride there. And then speaking of Andretti, this from... Uh, let's see here. This from racer. They were literally 48 hours away from getting the deal done that on racer.com an article there. Then I saw something else that was fascinating. So that whole SPAC thing, you know, that they, they set up. Yeah. So from, and and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation as always it's, it's Dutch. So apologies, but Jaron Dimondal or whatever found something that basically says the, the SPAC or Andretti acquisition has lowered the deal size of its plane IPO to $200 million instead of $250 million still pre IPO. Yeah. Uh, you know, a measly $200 million instead of 250. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, a, a significant drop, but I, I'm not even going to pretend. And, and I know you're the same. We don't even know what any of that means. I have no idea. There's a lot of acronyms and financial stuff that, quite frankly, is way, way over my head. And let's see, a couple other notes. So um, the Alan Sir Jr. A Checkered Past book by Alan Sir Jr. and Jade Gers. They'll have a book signing in Indy from noon to 2 this Saturday. So that would be, let's see here, looking at the calendar, that would be December 4th. Um, but they will have a book signing there. Also, John Oriovitz will be there with his Indy split book as well. And the kind of the details on that Nathan Brown with the story in the Indy star, but it'll be the Indiana historical society's 2021 holiday author fair. And that will take place at the Indiana historical society 
450 West Ohio Street in Indianapolis. So that's coming up this Saturday. I have the book. I have not read it yet because I'm catching up on another book, but I am excited to read it. Excellent. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to it, too. I think it'd be a great read. And uh, with that, uh, wait, well, there's one other thing. So in the racer mailbag of this week and Marshall Pruitt uh, talking with Tony Cotman from NZR Consulting, the designer of the Nashville Street Circuit, they are working on some changes. They will not change turn one, seven or eight, but they expect to see changes to turn 11. That leads onto the straight in front of the stadium. They plan on moving the apex back about six feet. Turn five, they can't make any changes due to underground utilities. And IndyCar is discussing moving the restarts to the same point as starts. And I think that's the big change that I think a lot of fans want. And and Tony says, if so, that will solve most issues. I think that's kind of the the kicker there. Some changes, you know, that are inevitable on a street course after the first year, you're not going to hit a home run with the setup the first time around the majority of the time. So just some tweaks, and I think it will help overall. All right, and with that, it is time for our random split era driver of the week. Not so random this week because, well, we've already talked to him. We have Robbie Groff, and was it was a great interview. Uh, I had a lot to say, and, and you know, it's, I, I mentioned the Walt Disney World track, which happened to be his last uh, race in the IRL, 1998, with Blueprint Racing, the, the season opener at Walt Disney World, and uh, didn't have a, as many fond memories of the track as, you know, a lot of other people do, um, largely tongue-in-cheek. But um, Robbie Groff, born in 1966, in Mission Hills, California, he raced in the in, uh, the IRL and the Kart Championship. Brother of Mike Groff, maybe more people know Mike than Robbie, but uh, Robbie did race 1994 Kart season and the 97-98 IRL season, nine combined starts. Best career finish, Caleb, was actually in his first race in the biggest race, finished ninth at the Indianapolis 500 mm-hmm. uh, with McCormick Motorsports and the G-Force GF01. Did race for Bettenhouse Motorsports uh, in the Kart World Series in 1994, two races at Long Beach and Portland. So it was in a Penske chassis with an Elmore engine. Of course, that was, you know, the infamous beast year with, with Penske. Uh, so, um, you know, a lot to, to, to delve in there with, with Groff, and he was great kind of talking about all that. But, uh, you know, raced, five, again, raced four seasons in Indy Lights, 1990 to 93. Uh, had wins mid Ohio, uh, also won at Laguna Seca as well in Indy Lights, along with Nazareth. But um, that's our random split era driver of the week, uh, and and then uh, the first of hopefully several of these drivers that we can track down and have on. I like like I mentioned, I think a couple weeks ago, I was just kind of bored one day and started. Uh, you know, tw- trying to find some of these guys on Twitter, and, and Robbie was the first one I was able to find and, and reach out, and he was more than obliging, uh, happy to join us. Yeah, very, very nice to talk with Robbie, and, you know, with that, we'll get to our tweet of the week. Just one tweet, but it's from Oliver Askew. Shocking news today, back when his Formula E ride was announced. Very fitting. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I, I like the uh, cleverness of the tweet. 
<laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, for Robbie Groff joining us and for Justin Kenny, I'm Caleb Hatch. Thanks for joining us on another edition of New Track Record Podcast. Podcasts by Federated Media.